Hello, Dr. Embers, and welcome to the Tick Bootcamp Podcast. Thank you. It's good to be here. Yes, it's really exciting for the Lyme geeks to finally have you on the podcast. Uh, it's been a long time coming. We've been uh, following you and your work for a long time, and uh, and you are just one of the researchers we've uh, really been excited to get onto this podcast. So we'd like to introduce you to the folks first. So can you give us uh, give us a little uh, information about your background? Where did you grow up, and what ultimately caused you to um, move into the uh, science arena? Certainly. So I, um, I grew up in central Kansas and um, I majored in biology and chemistry in a small college uh, there in Kansas called McPherson College. And um, when I was in the middle of my, um, I think, sophomore year, one of, one of my biology professors said, you know, you should really think about doing research because I was pre-med at that time. And I applied for a Howard Hughes Research Fellowship, and I ended up uh, getting that fellowship and going to Iowa State for the summer and doing research. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Doing research in immunology. And, and I, I kind of self-taught myself immunology because it wasn't offered at, at the school. And then the next summer, I did the same thing, and I applied for another Howard Hughes Fellowship, and I ended up at the University of Iowa. And... Um, I studied immunology there as well, kind of a different aspect. And by that point, uh, one of my advisors said, Monica, you are a data junkie. <laughs> so, so I was hooked on research and I was no longer pre-med. Um, and then when it came time to uh, look beyond after graduating college, I uh, applied to different graduate schools and I ended up getting accepted to uh, the Penn State College of Medicine. Um, and two, well, I got accepted to a few, but that's the one I chose um, because I could do immunology. And uh, I ended up kind of taking a different route. Um, and based on the advisor that I really liked, I, I studied uh, papillomaviruses and uh, really focused on how immune responses to papillomaviruses developed. But throughout the course of learning microbiology and immunology, my favorite thing to study was how pathogens evade host immune responses and how they can persist in hosts. And while I was a graduate student, I ran across this paper about how Borrelia burgdorferi <laughs> evades host immunity in a very unique way. And I was preparing to graduate, looking for a postdoctoral fellowship, and that paper came, came out of a lab at Tulane, Tulane Primate Center, and I emailed the, the, um, the PI of the lab, and I said, hey, I'm looking for a postdoc, and I'm really interested in this. And it's, it's kind of a long story, but I ended up going there for my postdoctoral fellowship, and I've been there ever since. That's a really cool story, and it's not a long story. It's a really cool story, and uh, I, I just think it's interesting that you went from Kansas to the line belt. So let's focus on your, your time as a as a child and ultimately a, a college student in in Kansas, were you aware of ticks and tick diseases uh, when you were living in and studying in Kansas? Uh, not really. We, um, you know, we I lived out in the country uh, and we had ticks and we saw ticks and we just pulled them off of our pets. But I never really remember having them on me. Uh, so that's a good thing. Um, and maybe then, it's a good thing. Maybe they're on yeah. you. You just didn't know. Yes. And then going to Pennsylvania, it became very clear to me 
that Lyme and tick-borne disease was a huge problem. And, you know, that was in um, around in and around 2000, like uh, when I when I started to really think about um, Lyme disease uh, and seeing it in people that I knew in Pennsylvania. And so uh, I'm not one to try to answer questions that are easy to answer <laughs> or to take easy routes. And so, um, you know, thinking about this problem of all these individuals who have been treated for the infection and continue to have persistent symptoms, uh, it was something that became very intriguing to me as I started to develop my career uh, in Lyme disease research. Yeah, so, so you went from Kansas where you were generally aware of, of ticks and not so much about tick diseases to you know, landing in the Lyme belt. And in fact, the state that has the greatest number of Lyme disease cases almost consistently, despite uh, Matt and I living on Long Island where there is a ton of Lyme disease. We, we, when we're looking at, at, at the stats, we see Pennsylvania is consistently, um, consistently at the top of the, I guess, the bad list of people who who are who who are suffering from Lyme at the at the greatest rate. So you found yourself right in the middle of it, right? And uh, interestingly, you then found another interesting path, which was to now studying uh, Lyme disease in the primate population. And I and I do want to break some of this down. So, Dr. Embers, we we have a a diverse uh, community of people who listen to us. Some people are very new to this community, and some people, unfortunately, have been in the community for a long time. So we like to break down. Uh, different pieces of uh, of our uh, guest background because you're you're going to be looking through a, a particular prism that is going to uh, impact the way you're going to teach what it is that you're going to teach our folks today. So let's let's first break down uh, immunology. What is an immunologist? Uh, so an immunologist <clears throat> is someone who studies how uh, we respond to infections. How the cells in our body uh, are are equipped, and the mechanisms by which they attempt to eradicate anything that's foreign. Um, and then there's the other side of immunology, which is more on the allergy side, which is um, when immune responses go wrong or or are exacerbated. Um, and so it's really find like our bodies are constantly trying to find the right level of response to an invading, uh, whether it be a pathogen or an allergen, uh, so as not to cause harm, but also uh, rid the body of that invader. Um, and then, so it's a delicate balance. And um, I, I find it very interesting, uh, especially when it comes to the ability of, you know, bacteria and viruses and parasites uh, to persist, even in the, in the face of this army of immune cells that we have and, and the things that they do. Um, and, and the Lyme disease bacteria is really, really good at it. <laughs> really, okay, really so good at fending off those, um, fending off that army. <laughs> and and you know we we've actually had some researchers on this podcast describe uh, Lyme disease as a beautiful bacteria. Well, let's say Borrelia first. Let's call it Borrelia because I want to talk to you about Lyme disease and and the definition of Lyme disease. But Borrelia is a beautiful bacteria because it is just such it is such a 
uh, an intelligent um, uh, bacteria, which is which is an interesting way for folks to uh, you know look at this bacteria, right? It is it is really really a sophisticated um, uh, uh, bacteria. But before we get there, talk to us. You also studied microbiology. So what's a microbiologist? So microbiologists study the pathogens. Um, so the viruses and the bacteria and the um, uh, organisms. Can you, yeah, the viruses, <laughs> back up the truck. Yeah. Viruses, bacteria, and parasites um, that even fungi that caused, uh, that cause disease. And, um, even prions can cause disease. And that's even, that's even more complex. Those are proteins. So there are a lot of different um, elements in, in, in our, in our living systems that can cause disease. And talk to us about how you now also have this uh, specialty as a bacteriologist. I don't think we've had a bacteriologist on the podcast before. So um, is, is that a, is that a particular specialty or subspecialty within the microbiology um, uh, discipline? Yeah, I mean, that simply refers to people who study microbiology who specialize in studying bacteria. And there are lots of different kinds of bacteria. Um, there are soil microbes, you know, there are th those kinds of bacteria that are environmentally important. And then there are the disease-causing bacteria. And then there are our own bodies have more bacterial cells than human cells because our guts are lined with bacteria. Our skin has bacteria, like um, so. It's they're not all bad, right? So, so um, it and and I, you know, I'm going to jump ahead to talk about spirochetes because the 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 bacteria that cause Lyme disease are called spirochetes because of their shape, their their um, their genus uh, or the family that they belong to, and they are beautiful in a way. I still get excited when I put them under the microscope and look at them moving. It's really fascinating, and um, they're long. Um, so, like E. coli, which is kind of our quintessential bacterium, it's you know found in the gut and um, Escherichia coli is the name. It's about one micrometer in size. So that's one, uh, if you if you take, well, let's just, let's just one times 10 to the sixth, um, negative sixth uh, meters. So if you take a millimeter and you cut that into a thousand pieces, the size of that bacteria is one of those 1,000 pieces, okay? And so E. coli is that size. And um, Borrelia are 10 to 20 mic micrometers in length um, and about one micrometer in diameter. So they have a different size and shape than a lot of bacteria. And there's you know discussion about whether or not they live outside cells or inside cells. Mostly they live outside cells um, because of, a, they are large and uh, they also are genetically, so when it comes to the DNA that's in the bacteria, it's more complex in the sense that um, some bacteria have these, um, what are called plasmids and they help to confer resistance. They'll like share them with other bacteria. Um, and they're like little circular pieces of DNA 
And most bacteria have one or two of those, maybe. Borrelia can have up to 21 of them, both wow. uh, linear and circular. So while their, their genome is not as complex as some like tuberculosis, they have all these plasmids that do other things that, that confer different abilities upon the bacteria. So they can get into different sites, um, they can survive in different environments. Um, they obviously can move through viscous environments better than most bacteria because they have that corkscrew type motion. So they're really, they're really fascinating uh, to study. All right. So you're really, really coming out as a geek right now, but we're going to hold <laughs> off on that. And uh, the next piece of your background I want to explore with you is, uh, is doing your postdoc work at Tulane. And then ultimately, uh, you know, uh, deciding to work at Tulane um, as a professor. So let's let's talk about uh, why you chose Tulane in particular, and why working with primates was was a unique opportunity when working with uh, animal modeling in the uh, in the Borrelia research. Yeah, well, first I wanted to get out of Pennsylvania because of the tick problem, so I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna go to Mardi <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But I really did, um, you know, that the research coming out of the lab that I, I talked about earlier in Lyme disease was very intriguing to me. And not only was it that paper showing the, the ability to evade uh, immune responses, but other papers that could had, uh, other publications that could, had come out of the lab. And the um, the principal investigator, his name uh, is Dr. Mario Philippe, and he developed the non-human primate model of Lyme disease um, back in, I believe, 1991. And uh, like a lot of things, um, you know, it's a really, really good model for human infection. We like, scientists love mice. And, and because they're cheap and because they're easy to work with. And, um, you know, in, in, the, in the Lyme disease field, um, you just can't assume that everything you see in mice is gonna, is gonna be reflected in humans. There are the, there's a lot of research that's, that's been done. It's great research, um, but in, in nature, mice are actually a reservoir host. And so mice don't get sick in nature. Uh, with the Lyme disease bacteria. And honestly, I never, ever, when it, when I was growing up, envisioned myself working with non-human primates, working with monkeys. And um, so when I got to Tulane, I was really focused on just doing laboratory research. I wasn't really um, doing anything with animals, um, with animal models, maybe some things with mice. And, um, and I started to learn more about the model and what it could be used for and the, and the value. And I have to say, um, being at Tulane, I'm, I'm a huge animal lover. I mean, most people are, and everyone who works there is. Um, we have to, you know, I, I, had some, I had some, you know, concerns about, you know, working with, with these, these animals. Um, and once I saw how they were treated and how well taken care of 
uh, they were. And, you know, we have a big campus. There's, they're all outdoors. Um, or for the most part, you know, they, they, they live in their family. It it's more like a zoo. I'll put it that way. <laughs> the place looks like more like a zoo than a research facility. And um, I just, uh, I just ended up really uh, thinking about it made me think more about what we can do using this model that other people can't do that can be translated directly into humans. And so now that I've now now that I've been there, um, there's kind of no going back, I guess. Yeah. So so <laughs> can you talk to us about what translational research is um, and and why working with a primate model um, helps you to do that type of work? Yeah, I like to say that um, test tubes don't have immune systems. Uh, they don't, and uh, the animals do. And there are a lot of things that test tubes don't have. And it's really important that we do as much as we can in the test tube, uh, so to speak. Um, but at some point when it comes to developing diagnostic tests, to testing better therapies, and to developing uh, prophylactic measures or vaccines, you really have to use animal models. And that's, um, that's where the translational piece comes in. So some people study cells and they study um, biochemical changes that happen in cells and Signal transduction is a topic that a lot of people like to focus on, like um, what happens at the DNA level, what happens inside cells, what happens inside the bacterial cells. Um, and those things are all very important because they're building blocks uh, to better understanding the pathogen. But uh, for me, I, you know, I want to see the big picture. I always see the big picture. Like, okay, so you know that, you know, this drug inhibits this function of the cell. What does it mean if you actually put it into a living system? Is it going to inhibit the, the bacteria from growing? Is it going to inhibit the bacteria from uh, evading the host response and, and persisting? So there are a lot of things um, like you can say, We've cured cancer in mice how many times, right? But uh, making sure that those findings can be translated into humans um, is really important. And so uh, I, I guess that's where I come from with the translational research. Yeah, so, so Dr. Timbers, I, I think in, in Lyme research, it's this is a particularly unique arena. And I think you touched upon that, but I want to emphasize that a little bit more, right? So the first issue, of course, when we're working with rodents as our, our, our model is, it may not translate. Even with the cancer model that you just, you just described, uh, the, 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 the outcome in the, in the rodent model does not always translate into the human model. So that's, that's one problem. But I think we have a unique problem here in the Lyme arena, which is, that for whatever reason, uh, rodents and the Lyme bacteria have developed a sort of symbiotic relationship, right? The, the Lyme bacteria does not, uh, does not attack 
the uh, the rodent in the same way that it does the human or other uh, or other or other animals. So the closer you can get to uh, the closer you can get to the human immune system with the the animal model you're using, the more likely it is going to translate here. But you know, and, and Matt and I have talked about this on many occasions with many of our researchers. We just don't know why they're using the you know the the mouse model because you know it is as you had described it, it is a reservoir mice are a reservoir and, and what a lot of the research has shown for example one of the things we're dealing with right here on long island is in the years where we have huge uh, crops of of acorns we have a larger mouse population when we have a larger mouse population we have a larger tick population and a, li a larger lyme population there is a direct connection between the number of acorns and the and the amount of lyme disease we get in subsequent years right so we know there's a direct relationship between between um the mouse survival rates and 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 lyme infections in humans right so it just doesn't seem to us that it's wise to use the you know the mouse model when we're modeling the different uh different research topics that you're that you're utilizing and you really have to move closer to the you know to the human model and we know we can't do human research so it's got to be primate i i think i think it really is the only way to do it I mean, can you can you give me your thoughts on that yeah, the other factor is that um, without a doubt, the vast majority of rodent research also uses inbred strains of mice. So, um, you know, when you want to play, when you want to find a result, like when you want to test uh, whether or not one factor has an impact on whatever you're studying, it's really good to have a, a model that is repeatable, that you can easily, um, you know, you get the same outcome in every single mouse when you do the same thing. And that's wonderful. And you can learn a lot from that. Um, but humans are complicated. And um, non-human primates are just as genetically diverse. The, the rhesus macaques are just as genetically diverse and maybe even more than humans. And so if you take a strain of mouse that's commonly used in, in biomedical or in, re in research with Lyme disease called the C3H mouse, it's inbred, you infect it with Borrelia burgdorferi, you get a very predictable trajectory. And, you know, 14 days you get this, you know, you get carditis, you get arthritis. Um, and when you infect uh, rhesus macaques, there's no there's no prediction because they're 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 diverse they're very diverse some animals get infection in the heart some animals get infection in the joints some animals develop good antibody responses good immune responses some animals don't um and one of the really important aspects of um using non-human primates for research in Lyme disease is that they become infected in the brain whereas mice do not so you can't study the impact of Borrelia on the brain in, in mice. Um, and, and we all know that that's by far the worst manifestation of Lyme disease is when, when people have neurological Lyme disease. And so, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's really critical that we do that. And the hard part here is that they're very expensive. So, the research, you know, costs a lot of money. Um, if you're if you're going to work with non-human primates, 
And that's a good thing because we spend a lot of money taking care of them um, because, you know, they do require uh, complex housing and, and enrichment and all the things that, um, you know, you want them to go into a research study being healthy, right? Um, and so, yeah, I, I, uh, I'm very biased <laughs> in yeah. this sense, um, but uh, it's, it's really important to, to consider what you can do with each model that you have. Let's now talk about the relationship between researchers and clinicians, meaning medical clinicians. Because you, 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 during the course of your your um, college education, you had a foot in each camp where you were debating about whether you're going to be a clinician or whether or not you're going to be a researcher. And I don't know that uh, we emphasize enough on this podcast or in the community how important it is to have folks dedicating their careers towards research. We want to thank you for doing that, quite frankly. We really, we really do, uh, because this isn't always the most glamorous field for folks to come into in dedicating their research. We understand cancer is much more glamorous and there's a lot more money in other places. So we want to thank you for, for dedicating your career to doing this kind of research. And we want to talk about the importance of having researchers, because one of the things we've learned from, from, uh, from many of the folks we've interviewed in the past is that generally accepted medical practices, which are the parameters that clinicians have to work within, are established based on the research that's done by people like you. So if you don't do the research and you don't have the findings available to clinicians, then they're they're boxed in for what they're boxed in and they're limited in what they can do. And we find it really frustrating in the Lyme community when clinicians are not doing the job we need them to do. But the truth is, in large part, they're not able to do the work that I think most of them would like to do is because we don't have enough good research and we don't have enough people like you. So one of the reasons why Matt and I are fanboys, quite frankly, of yours is because of the vast amount of publications you're responsible for and the impact that that's having from a translation translational standpoint. So can you talk to us about first researchers and what they're doing and how they're essentially the quiet heroes that allow us to have the 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 clinical flexibility that's necessary to treat the diversity of presentations that Lyme disease um, creates in the, in the human community. Yeah, certainly. I've often said, like, basically, my job is to be, my goal is to be able to arm clinicians with what they need to treat patients effectively. And that comes with a lot of a lot of research, a lot of time and dedication to um, finding what works and finding out what doesn't work. And I think there are some phenomenal um, physician researchers out there too in this field, um, some of whom you may have met who who get both sides, right? They and we need more of them. We need, to, we need for the physicians to publish their findings just as much as we need for the researchers to publish their findings. Um, but yeah, it's, it's not glamorous, but, um, and, I, and I want uh, for clinicians to be able to, you know, see what we've done and to learn from what we've done. Um, and that's, you know, that's up to them, I guess, ultimately. And some do, and some don't. Um, some don't accept some some of the findings that we've had. That's that's the reality. Um, and so, you know, for me, what I can do best 
is to design experiments and conduct them in a way that um, conserves uh, what we call rigor and reproducibility, meaning that we use the right controls. We do have, um, we can repeat what we see um, and that there's, there's integrity to, to the science that we produce. And to be honest, there's some science out there that doesn't have a lot of integrity and that doesn't help the, that doesn't help the situation. And so uh, I'm very critical of myself. I'm, I'm a lot more critical of myself than, than um, some of those people out there have <laughs> uh, shown themselves to be uh, critical of me. Um, but, but it's, you know, we're not doing patients any service if we don't, uh, if we can't stand by the research that we do and the findings that we have. And so I honestly don't envy clinicians. I think it's very hard. Um, I imagine it's very hard for them to have a situation where you have a patient who you've treated with what you've been told. You've treated them with what you've been told is the proper um, treatment you know, methodology. And then they come back to you and say, I'm not better. What do you do? You know, what do you do? And um, I, I really don't envy that, that position. And so uh, in a way, I think it's a little bit easier for me because I don't have to make those decisions. But I really, um, it really is my life's goal to um, to make but, being a clinician easier. Yeah, but Dr. Members, I think you have to be, uh, and, and I and I appreciate that you're that you're uh, critical of yourself, right? And I mean, and thankfully, you're not one of the five thousand researchers that had to withdraw papers this year. I mean, they, you know, they there have been a lot of challenges in the research community, in the scientific research community this year alone, and some of the top institutions in the country um, have to withdraw papers. Actually, a, a couple of deans have been fired from major institutions because of because of the you know their 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 lack of rigor. For, for, for what they were publishing. So uh, I, I think it's really great that you have the personality that you have your heart in yourself, but you're, but you're, you're producing, um, you know, uh, materials that, that, that should, should withstand the rigor um, of, of repeatability and, 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 uh, and, and reliability. So I, I think that's wonderful that you have that personality. So you found the right place clearly. Um, but, you know, one of the things you already said that I think is just, is just fabulous, which is when you're doing the research that you're doing within the primate community, you're seeing a diversity of presentations despite having the same uh, the same vector and the same microbes because of the diversity in the you know in the population of of, of primates that are being infected, right? Now that of course would be would be wonderful for a for a clinician to understand, but unfortunately because of the early research and the and the gatekeepers that were limiting what would be published uh, from the you know the Lyme research community, most clinicians even here on Long Island who I myself have treated with, are looking for a very narrow. A set of symptoms, despite having so much diversity. And one of the things Matt and I have talked about re repeatedly is I've been bitten by ticks many, many times, and I have not gotten sick. I'm knocking on wood. Matt, unfortunately, hasn't been bitten by ticks as many times, but he became chronically ill yeah. to the point where, and we've described on this podcast before, he was taken out of out of his workplace having seizures. He was so sick he could not get out of bed. He could not watch 
Um, you know, he was so neurologically impaired. He couldn't read for years, couldn't watch TV. I mean, that's how impaired he was. So you have two people living, you know, close enough where we could walk to each other's house, having very, very different experiences. But when we go into a doctor's office, they're looking for a bullseye rash. They're looking for, they're looking for, you know, they're looking for arthritic presentations. They're looking for a very limited presentation. Whereas the research that you're doing and this, you know, very sort of casual description that you gave has would 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 benefit every clinician just to hear that piece of what you what you observed no less the rest of the work you're doing so so don't be so hard on yourself you're doing unbelievably great work and we as as people in the patient population are unbelievably blessed to have you doing what you're doing so we we, we do want to cheer for you folks in the research community and the work that you're doing in particular and and this does need to get you know this does need to get uh, brought down into into the medical schools and the education that that doctors are having, but even more importantly, doctors have to have the flexibility of treating their patients and not be concerned about lawsuits because they're not following generally accepted medical practices that are being set by very narrowly limited uh, research journals and the people who are sitting on those panels, and we don't want them to have to deal with the licensing issues that they have to deal with. Uh, when when people make complaints to medical boards and the and the people who are testifying against these doctors are the people who've done the research that say that you should have a bullseye rash and you should have um, you should have uh, uh, you know, arthritic presentations and you should get better after a short course of antibiotics. Right, and yeah, one of the things that I think really contributes to the politics around Lyme disease is that you cannot see it. If you're a physician, um, a friend, a relative, you can't see it. And we know this from looking at our um, specimens. Look, you know, um, it's not like a urinary tract infection where you just culture it and you say, okay, this person has a UTI, give them antibiotics. And if it goes away, then we can, you know, their urine will be clear. Uh, you can't do that with Lyme disease. It takes us a lot of work to find few spirochetes, few bacteria in in primates, whether they've been treated with antibiotics or not. They're rare, they're hard to find, they're slow growing. They're, they're insidious, to be honest. They, they are insidious. And um, what kind of disease or damage they cause in each individual depends on how well that individual responds. Something else that we've learned, and I think this this is really important, is that people who this and this is gen, in general in a general sense, um, people who develop good uh, antibody responses, which is a, a the immune response that's measured with a diagnostic test. First of all, they're going to get diagnosed, and second of all they are probably going to respond much better to treatment because the treatment that we use, doxycycline, is what we call microbiostatic. It doesn't kill the bacteria. It relies on the host immune system to kill the bacteria that have stopped growing. So it basically stops the bacteria from growing, but if you remove the antibiotic and there's no immune response, the bacteria will regrow. So not only do you need a good immune response to be diagnosed, but you need a good immune response to be treated. And we have had uh, to be treated effectively. And we have had uh, individuals um, 
in the primates that what I would what I would call uh, seronegative, meaning we can't find antibodies, but we know that they're persistently infected because we can find the bacteria. So these are the people that I worry about. These are the people that we really need to help um, because they're not going to have good outcomes, and they're not, you know, and. So, so, so it, it complicates the picture for diagnosis too, because that, that is a challenge. The, the amount of spirochetes in the body is a huge challenge to diagnostics, because if we had a way to directly detect the bacteria in the blood, in the urine, then there, there would be no question, right? But we don't have that because once the tick bites, the bacteria spend very little time in the bloodstream, and enter the tissues and, and then they can't be found. And so developing a, di a direct diagnostic test for Lyme disease is a significant hurdle. And it's something that I, I am seeing um, different factions really you know, contributing to, whether it's uh, government funding or foundation funding, um, they really, there, there really is uh, an emphasis on that, which I think is important. Can I just recap two of those points, Rich, because I think there's two of them are really important to, to highlight here. The first one is, Dr. Embers, you talked about how doxycycline, the drug used 99.9% .9 of the time to treat Lyme disease diagnoses, does not kill the bacteria. It just stops it from replicating, correct? So it's not something that kills, it just stops replication, right? Yes. And the second part of that is the testing is generally better for people that have strong, robust immune systems. And those are generally the people that respond well to treatment, correct? Yes. So the people that don't have strong immune systems are less likely to test positive and more likely to suffer severely with more drastic symptoms, correct? Exactly. Okay. And and, and this, this highlights the problem with the debate of chronic Lyme disease versus acute Lyme disease and why some people get better and why don't. I mean, the technology and the testing and the science behind it, it's even worse with what we have because it only highlights the people who are healthy who get the disease, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I'm sorry, Rich. I just wanted to make sure I, I followed that correctly. And, and, and I think this is an important conversation to have, uh, maybe in a little more detail, because that it does suggest that the later we wait to be treated, the more likely it is that the disease has compromised our immune system. And once our immune system is compromised, it's not going to have a first a testable response. But even more importantly, when you're treated with the traditional course of antibiotics that was recommended by the early by the early cl uh, clinical uh, research findings, it's not going to be effective in ultimately um, preventing the disease from progressing because you need to have a healthy immune system in order to be able to clear the bacteria. Exactly, it's it's a complete catch twenty two, right? Um, and so the approach that that I think we need to take, and you're absolutely right, the longer you wait before getting diagnosed and treated the more difficult it is to treat. That's been that's been demonstrated in animal models. That's been, you know, uh, documented in humans. We know that to be true. And so um, what I believe um, very strongly is that we need to treat uh, Lyme disease the same way that we treat uh, tuberculosis. So tuberculosis, mycobacterium, tubercu um, mycobacterium tuberculosis is a slow growing bacteria that can be dormant for years in, in patients. And we don't treat this infection with a single antibiotic. We treat it with multiple antibiotics and sometimes for up to six months. Now, I'm not, 
a strong advocate for long-term antibiotic therapy because I think doxycycline, if it doesn't work in 30 days, it's probably not going to work in six months. You know what I mean? So I think we need to have a strategy where, where we come at the bacteria with, with um, antibiotics that target the bacteria themselves, um, which, you know, we're, we're working with a group at, at Duke University on developing uh, specific small molecule inhibitors that can, can block activity of the bacteria. So the way that we treat mycobacterium tuberculosis is with antibiotics that target um, both growing cells and dormant cells or persister cells. And so I think this is the same strategy that we need to take with, um, with the Lyme disease bacteria because they do, uh, we've shown in, in, in the test tube that when you treat the bacteria with doxycycline and they're able to develop into what we call persister cells, it's because they enter a slow growing phase. And to think that that Borrelia can't become dormant is for long periods of time is very naive because what do they do in the tick? They live in the tick for months without any nutrients and in, in a state of dormancy. And then once they get the nutrients, they start growing again. And I think, um, you know, there was this really great study out of um, Stephen Barthold's lab. And it was in mice. Um, it was, a, yeah, I love this study. So what they did was they infected mice uh, with Borrelia. And then they treated them with ceftriaxone, which is a very potent drug. It's actually um, microbicidal, like it, it attacks the cell membrane. Um, and then they waited and they waited one month, two months, three months, four months after antibiotic treatment. And they had this test where they could measure um, the number of spirochetes, basically the spirochetal burden in the tissues. So how many were still there? And it was a very, very, very low level until they got to 12 months. And when they looked at 12 months after antibiotic treatment, the, the levels of spirochetes were the same as if they'd never been treated. So that proves that they're capable of being dormant for a long period of time and then resurging or regrowing. Rich, can so, I just make a comment here too? Because I just want to highlight for people that are listening that have people in their families or their lives that doubt chronic Lyme is real. Dr. Embers has a definitively proven chronic Lyme is real and that Lyme disease will persist beyond standard treatment. And in fact, sometimes long-term antibiotic treatment of doxycycline. We've, we've seen that as well. You've had 31 high probability research studies just on the Academy Family Tree Service alone. You've gotten hundreds. When I say hundreds, I mean several hundred thousand views on your research study on loop alone, right? And your work is leading this research. So I just want to highlight for people listening that this is the episode to share with your friends and family because it definitively proves Lyme persists and you're not crazy. So I just wanted to digress, which I apologize for that. But no, no, you're right, Matt. So I, and it's important for us to, you know, just for me and you to recognize that there are hundreds of thousands of people looking at Dr. Ambers' work. So we're not the only geeks that are following her. There is there there are hundreds of thousands, probably millions of people who are following this work. And that's important. That's important to point out. So let's let's Dr. Ambers, let's pivot over to the the problem that we like to discuss with everyone we we interview, which is the problem with defining Lyme disease. Um, and, and in our view, one of the biggest problems we have in this community is we really don't have a working definition of Lyme disease. 
uh, because of the the you know the early researchers and the early um, the early now uh, you know uh, dogmatically accepted definition of Lyme disease at least by the CDC is just simply um, failing us right because um, you know we're 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 defining this acute presentation as the same disease as a chronic presentation. We're defining one bacteria and multibacterial um, infections as the same thing. Um, so what we here at Tick Bootcamp have argued, um, and by the way, Alan McDonald is one of our mentors, but we disagree with him on one thing, which is he thinks we need to be divorced from Lyme. Um, and he's written on this. We've argued that we should be taking control of the term Lyme and control of the definition. And our position is that Lyme disease is a polymicrobial, multisystemic, chronic infectious disease. Uh, and, and, if you, and if you took our definition of Lyme disease, um, you would tease out the acute presentation because it's not Lyme disease in our view. Um, and you would have what really is Lyme disease so that we can look at we can look at the different stages of this disease. We can look at the different presentations. We can look at the different ways of treating it as opposed to getting into debate about whether or not, um, you know, a short course of a, a, a broad spectrum bacteria will be helpful. And the answer is probably yes. And I'd like your, your, your opinion on this. If we treat it immediately after a tick bite, I think doxy would probably be an effective um, uh, treatment protocol should be should be long enough, um, you know, in our view, at least six six weeks, so that we get past the replication period. Uh, and because it's broad spectrum and it's polymicrobial, it might work. But after that, it seems it seems to us that doxy is just not an effective tool. You know, it's just not going to work. So, give, give, first, give us your reaction to uh, the redefinition of Lyme as a polymicrobial multisystemic chronic infectious disease, and then talk to us about treating this acute presentation versus the chronic presentation differently? Yeah, I think what you're getting at is the um, high probability that someone who has an infection with Borrelia burgdorferi probably has an infection with other, um, other pathogens like anaplasma or... Um, Ehrlichia or... Ehrlichia or, or um, Babesia. Um, I'll talk about Bartonella in a second. Um, but uh, yeah, I think, you know, when the tick feeds, it regurgitates everything that's in its midgut, not just not just the Lyme bacteria. And so um, you you know, it's hard to it's hard to be able to tease out all the components of um, what what would be a tick-borne infection, tick-borne disease. And the, I think the reason that, you know, doxycycline is a first line drug is because it will be effective against um, anaplasma ehrlichia and Borrelia in the early stage, um, not so much for Babesia, but it highlights the importance of testing for all of the pathogens that can be transmitted by that species of tick, um, Ixodes scapularis. So, you know, like, if you have a positive Borrelia test, you know you've been bitten by an Ixodes tick because other ticks don't transmit it. Um, and so I think, it, yeah, I think it's absolutely very important to understand what other pathogens could be uh, co-transmitted with that, with that tick or multiple ticks with multiple, you know, if you're in the woods, you don't always just get one tick bite, right? Um, and so uh, it's certainly very important to think about that. So 
You know, one of the other things that I think is important for us to discuss at this stage, and then Matt is jumping out of his chair, so I'm going to I'm going to uh, uh, step back. But it, it, it's it's going to be the way uh, you know this again this this really really well. First of all, this ancient bacteria um, that has evolved over the course of millions of years has learned how to develop symbiotic relationships in some cases with hosts. We talked a little bit about uh, the symbiotic relationship it has developed with the mice and the and the rodent population, um, but also uh, the symbiotic relationship it has developed with ticks and the, and the positive impact that Borrelia has on ticks. So, you know, a lot of research has shown that ticks who are, who are harboring Borrelia will have a larger fat content. They'll be able to live longer, certainly in colder weathers, in colder weather, I'm sorry, colder climates. And then of course, it also develops symbiotic relationships with other infections when it's in the in the tick, and then when it gets into the human um, host, it develops uh, symbiotic relationships with other bacteria and viruses and protozoa that we are harboring separate from the you know the tick bite and that which is injected into us there. And and and, and we 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 we've looked a lot at with with, with some po uh, past podcasts how there is this sort of not only just shape shifting that's going on with the bacteria, but there's also protein shifting and and exchanging in 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 um you know within the human body. So I mean this is a very sophisticated bacteria that's going to do all kinds, you know, develop all kinds of very interesting um, relationships, which with other microbes and vectors, that's going to allow it to be uh, more effective in, in evading our immune system. Yeah, uh, I think um, it's important to consider the ability of Borrelia to actively suppress the immune system in some people. And so uh, perhaps what you're getting at uh, is that if you have maybe a dormant infection or a co-infection, that having Borrelia there suppressing the immune response makes that infection worse. And I think we definitely need to do a lot more research on co-infections and how they exacerbate disease, how they can affect uh, diagnostic testing, how, how they can affect treatment. Um, we uh, we do have uh, a, a grant to study uh, co-infection of Borrelia burgdorferi with anaplasma phagocytophyllum, and our hypothesis is exactly that: that you get um, worse, the, the pathology or disease is worse in animals that are co-infected than those that are singly infected, and it's definitely something that we need to, you know, make more effort in 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 understanding because. Uh, ticks are ticks are complicated too. Yes, <laughs> they are. They, I mean, the, the spit and the you know the properties in the sp spit that are immunosuppressive are just really powerful too. I mean, when you're putting that together, and also also the way the way the 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 bacteria ultimately becomes supercharged when it's in the tick. Uh, mid-gut, and then when it gets spit into us, it's able to essentially outrace our immune response in some cases. So, I mean, just so many different, you know, permutations here of, 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 of you know, the, the changes that are occurring in this bacteria that are just wild. So I, I know Matt has a million questions yeah. to ask you, but you did, you did, um, you did reference a, a, a thought that you want to share with our listeners on Bartonella. Do you want to share that now or do you want Matt to jump into his, his vast investigation into your research? Well, I'm happy uh, if if Matt can hold this thought. I'm I'm okay. happy to 
<laughs> uh, to talk about Bartonella because we're seeing, um, this is something that we're seeing a lot more in patients who have been diagnosed with Lyme disease as uh, a positivity in, in terms of Bartonella tests. And it's really important to know that when you're testing for Bartonella, um, that antibody responses are really not indicative of active disease, that you really have to find the bacteria um, because a lot of people have been exposed to Bartonella. It is ubiquitous. And especially like veterinarians are high risk because they're dealing with cats and dogs all the time. Um, and so uh, we have delved into this field of research because um, apparently I'm not crazy enough. <laughs> I need to <laughs> add Bartonella to to my list of uh, controversial topics to study, but um, it's it's really a fascinating uh, genus of bacteria. It's also very difficult to kill with antibiotics, just like um, just like Borrelia, and just like you know Brucella and Burkholderia. There are other bacteria who behave this way, and we accept the fact that they're hard to treat with antibiotics, and so. Um, one of the hypotheses that we have is that um, Bartonella are ubiquitous in the environment. People may have dormant um, subclinical infections with Bartonella, and then they get Lyme disease, and all of a sudden Bartonella becomes a problem. And we we have done some, uh, and continue we are continuing to do some studies in animal models to try to figure that out. And I think uh, I think the immune suppression imparted by uh, Borrelia is a is a pretty logical explanation of why we're seeing more Bartonella uh, in these patients. Dr. Embers, you mentioned the antibody testing for Bartonella is not a good indication of an active infection. So does that mean even if you are, obviously an IgG generally means, I believe, a past infection. So IgG antibodies may not necessarily mean an active infection with Bartonella, but if you're an IgM positive Bartonella test, is that is that true as well? Or that's not indicative of an active infection? Is that what you're cautioning us on? It, it needs to be a reliable Bartonella test. Um, I think one challenge with Bartonella too that I've learned in recent years is that uh, the antibody responses are highly species specific. So if you have a negative response to a Bartonella Hensile test, you might have a Bartonella Quintana infection and it won't be picked up. Um, when it comes to IgM, uh, I don't think it's as complicated as, as the scenario with Lyme disease where IgM can persist for long periods of time, but um, it's important to consider that it's done by a reputable uh, laboratory. And in that case, if you do have an IgM positive, um, I think it, would, it should be considered in the differential diagnosis. So one of the questions I had earlier on was, we know that you're able to identify Lyme disease is present in some of your research study with these, these monkeys. We know that you're able to then treat for a standard course of antibiotics, and in many cases longer, these monkeys. And then we know that you've been able to prove that Lyme persists despite a negative test for Lyme disease. And the question I had when prepping for this interview, and I think a lot of people listening may have as well, is, well, how do you know Lyme is still there if the test is negative after you treat? And you're able to prove that, right? And that's where this whole term xenodiagnosis comes in, I believe. And that just really fascinated me. So could you share with our listeners what that means and how you use that method to prove that Lyme bacteria persists in the monkey model after a diagnosis and treatment for Lyme disease? Exactly. And like I said, it's extremely difficult to find these bacteria um, inside the animal hosts 
whether they've been treated with antibiotics or not. So the technique that we used originally to show that the Borrelia were persisting was to feed uninfected ticks on the primates that had been treated with doxycycline for the 28-day regimen. And those ticks, we, we knew that they were uninfected. We raised them in our own lab. We tested all of them to make sure they were uninfected. We put them on the monkeys. And after they fed, they were able to take up the bacteria that were hiding in the tissues um, and persisting. And so it's become very fascinating to me, um, the, the chemoattractants or the, the, the components in tick saliva that are able to attract the Borrelia to the site of tick feeding, uh, which have to be very potent uh, for this to work. And this works better than any other detection method that we've, we've used in animals. And this is key because the Lyme bacteria, as you noted, exist in very small quantities throughout the body. So this is the best way to prove that Lyme persists. And that's exactly what you've done, correct? Exactly. Yes. So, I'm oh, oh, sorry. No, no, please continue. Um, I can I can go a step further. Um, we were, were criticized for uh, this being done in non-human primates and the idea that it's never been proven in humans. Um, there was a group at uh, Tufts University and the NIH who did xenodiagnosis in humans, uh, Lyndon Hugh and Adriana Marquez. And uh, what they did was they fed larval ticks on humans that were clean larval ticks on humans. And they, they basically got very few positives. But what we know from studying um, ticks is that larval ticks are extremely small. There's very little content when they feed. And um, when we tried to do you know, PCRs or detect the DNA, we, we would get nothing. And so, um, so we use nymphal ticks and we get a much better uh, result where we used a, a very specific antibody to detect the, the Borrelia in the xenodiagnostic ticks. And so there are some pretty critical differences between that study and, and what we did. And um, when it comes to humans, you, you may or may not know that we've also begun looking at autopsy specimens of patients who uh, had been diagnosed with Lyme disease and treated for Lyme disease. And uh, one case in particular that we've published, uh, we've been studying several more, but one uh, case that we've, we've published, uh, we were able to find uh, Borrelia in the brain and spinal cord of a woman who uh, had been extensively treated with antibiotics. And she had a classical case definition of Lyme disease. And so, um, and then she ended up developing dementia. So it's a really, um, it's a sad story that's all too common. And um, the more we can look at, you know, people who have donated their their organs and their tissues um, to, to Lyme disease research, uh, we owe it to them to, um, to try to find answers. So I'm going to really break that down a little bit. So when you were criticized for your work using xenodiagnosis, it was based on tests using human models and larva ticks. And larva ticks are essentially baby ticks, like pure, super small baby ticks, right? 
and we weren't getting enough in the gut, we weren't getting enough blood, and it wasn't showing any results. You're using nymph ticks, which are more grown-up ticks, which have a larger gut and can hold more blood and can hold more substance, and then you're, you were finding results using those ticks because it's a better model to be able to do this kind of testing with xenodiagnosis. But beyond that, and beyond that explanation, you're saying that when you are the human model, we're biopsying brains of people through these biobanks, somebody who was treated for Lyme long-term, and you found Lyme disease in the brain, spirochetes in the brain, correct? So that, that right there is proof positive that Lyme persists in the human model, in addition to your argument about the types of ticks being used to perform xenodiagnosis on human beings, right? Yes, exactly. Okay, so yeah. the, the crux of I feel like your research is twofold. Your research is A, you're trying to investigate better diagnostic methods for Lyme, and you're also looking for better treatment methods as well, beyond obviously the really bad doxycycline model. So on the, the latter part of that, which is your work for a better test, you mentioned earlier, I believe his name was Felipe Cabello, right? And he's he was there at Tulane before you, and you you've kind of been studying some of his work is and you you did some collaborations with him to look at the immunological response to Borrelia or Lyme disease immunogenic protein A, BIP A, whatever that means, right? And I'm just kind of reading a research study here and aiming to understand how this species-specific antigen, right, can be used for potential diagnosis of North American strains. What does that mean? What, what, can you explain that work you did or that at least that collaboration you did there looking at that particular protein and how that can be used to possibly improve diagnostics? Okay, I have to make a couple of clarifications. Please uh, do. <laughs> so... Um, my my mentor at Tulane is Mario Philippe. Um, uh, I, I got it wrong. Apologies. Yeah. Felipe Cabello is a wonderful researcher. I think he's retired now, but he's uh, he's he's a bacteriologist who studied. Um, we published some papers, uh, a review article with him, actually, on persisters, on Borrelia persisters. And um, anyway, um, and BIP-A is a protein that is um, produced by relapsing fever spirochetes. So this was a study that we did with um, Joe Lopez at Texas, um, at Baylor. And uh, so, so that's, another, that's another area of research. And, and it basically highlighted what I said about um, monkeys and, and mice. And, and that is that uh, when we looked at the antibody responses of infected non-human primates versus infected mice, um, there were like a couple of different proteins that we used to to pick up the antibodies from the infection, and they were different. Like one of them was very different between non-human primates and mice. And so we're you know he's working on developing better diagnostics for relapsing fever Borrelia, and um, you know uh, Borrelia. Miyamotoi is a relapsing fever species that's transmitted by the Ixodes scapularis tick that transmits the uh, standard Lyme disease bacteria, Borrelia burgdorferi. And so there's a lot of um, crossover between uh, these species, but they're also, they're also kind of a distinct um, clade. And, you know, another area of interest, uh, which I would love to have some <laughs> some time and money to study is uh, congenital transmission. And um, that's been highly controversial. And, and there are plenty of case studies to show that this happens. And I think um, with relapsing fever, it's very common. 
So this, these bacteria are high levels in the bloodstream. They're readily across the placenta. Um, this is the standard relapsing fever spirochetes transmitted by uh, soft ticks, very common in, um, in the Middle East and in Africa. Um, but we also have Miyamotoi in the United States. And can those spirochetes be transmitted from mother to child in the same way that um, the other relapsing fever spirochetes are, are transmitted? And also standard Borrelia-Burgdorferi. What does the maternal immune system do to, um, to the infection? If, it's, if there's a dormant Borrelia-Burgdorferi infection, um, can it resurge during pregnancy? Because the maternal immune system is very different than, you know, um, our normal homeostatic immune response because there's that delicate balance of trying to protect the growing fetus and uh, protect the mother. And so some things are suppressed and some, some things are exacerbated. And what I think is that um, Borrelia burgdorferi is in low levels in the bloodstream normally and so I think the transmission from mother to child is less common than it would be for relapsing fever, but it's certainly possible. And, and so um, we, really need, we really need research uh, looking into this because there are a lot of moms out there who have kids, babies who have no known tick bite and are presenting with um, with what is appears to be Lyme disease. Um, and if, if the bacteria are transmitted from the mother to the child directly, then that's gonna generate a very different antibody response, which is not gonna be picked up by the standard diagnostic tests either. So we can't use the same tests um, to pick up that infection. So there's, there's a lot of work to be done there. Congenital Lyme, will not respond to traditional Lyme testing because the antibody response by the immune system will be different, you're saying, right? I believe that it will. We haven't studied it, hmm. to be honest. I just know that we're relying on the same tests that we always use. Right. So can can we walk it back a little bit? You guys are having this really fascinating conversation, <laughs> but I want to walk it back a little bit for our our community that is new to, uh, to Lyme disease. Dr. Emerson, can you talk to us about the, the different types of testing um, that, uh, you know, different testing categories and, uh, and, and just highlight some of the challenges with each of the current testing categories that, that exist? Um, so for, for Borrelia infection, um, obviously the, uh, the most well-adopted like, test um, in, in, in accepted test is the two-tier test, which is um, an ELISA, which um, basically tests antibodies present in the in the patient's blood against a whole array of, of, of Borrelia proteins. And sometimes there's not, uh, non-specific binding of those antibodies to those proteins. And so the second tier is what's called a Western blot. And the Western blot is um, basically taking those proteins and running them out on a gel and putting them onto a piece of uh, paper. <laughs> it's a it's a special kind of paper. Um, and then adding the antibodies, and you can actually see the bands um, when the antibodies bind to those those proteins. And so um, there 
many, many, many years ago, the criteria for interpreting the Western blot was developed. Um, and I did a, a, a continuing medical education course on this where I broke down that, that paper. And basically what I saw was that uh, they used Lyme arthritis patients to develop the test. They set the specificity at 99% and said, this is what you need to get to have a positive Lyme test. And it didn't take into account the huge variability in how patients respond and how they produce antibodies. And, um, and I think that has really been a huge detriment uh, to Lyme disease diagnosis. Because even if, if you look at that paper, if you look at the neuroborreliosis patients, they don't have good antibody responses. They're not all positive. And so, but they know that they're, they're, um, they're Lyme disease positive uh, patients. Um, so it's, it's really hindered uh, accurate diagnosis. It's led to, you know, in the, like, what, what I see as un unnecessarily stringent um, criteria. And so you have a lot of patients who are being missed. And even with those, with the two-tier testing, the sensitivity at the early stage is horrible. You know, in early diagnosis, it's below 40%, which is not good for a diagnostic test. Right. So what we really need to do is to develop a diagnostic test that enhances the sensitivity and um, still keeps a high specificity, but incorporates all these different types of patients like that have different kinds of antibody responses and all over all different phases of disease. And so that's something that that our lab is working on as well. That's cool. Thanks. So what so you've now talked about the antibody um testing and you find out two different sets of problems with the antibody testing. Now, can you talk to us about direct detection and what type of direct de detection testing there is? And, and with, the, of course, the caveat that uh, it is very difficult to uh, locate the bacteria in the bloodstream, but with that understanding, talk to us about what, what direct detection testing there is. So there are a couple of ways that you can directly detect the bacteria. One is through the DNA. Um, another is through the RNA, which is the product of, of um, replicating or growing bacteria. And then uh, the other one is with protein that come from the bacteria. And so there are many different labs who have come up with really cool tests um, aimed at, at picking up, very, very sensitively picking up uh, pieces of the bacteria, whether they be DNA, RNA, uh, protein. And I think we have reason to be optimistic about that. Um, there, there's been a fair amount of investment. Like I said, um, there's a lot of ingenuity going into to direct uh, testing for Lyme disease. And really where the, um, the hurdle is, is getting a product into market. Because there's, there's what we call in, in the scientific community and the um, product development community is called the, the, the valley of death, right? So you 
as a scientist, you say, I'm going to develop a diagnostic test and you test it in the lab and you test it against a bunch of human patient samples and it works fantastically. And then it's dead. Unless you have somebody come along and say, I'm going to give you $20 million to be able to take this test and bring it to market because it takes a heck of a lot of investment to get through that process. And it's also a complicated process with, you know, intellectual property, patents, and, you know, patents are expensive. Um, and the whole process takes a lot of work. So um, we need, in a sense, I believe that we need for Big Pharma to, to take an interest in Lyme disease diagnostic testing because it's not a small market anymore. It's a very, very large market. And so I hope that, you know, some of these promising assays or tests um, will be will be seen by uh, Big Pharma and uh, and that there will be an interest in investing in them, because I think we we can do better. We definitely can do better. So, Dr. Emmers, let's talk let's talk about a little bit alternative different methodologies for testing. So we read a little bit that you may have dabbled in some biosensor research and this interdisciplinary approach to, you know, research. You know, we had Dr. Michael Schneider on, who was a geneticist at Stanford University, and he accidentally diagnosed himself with Lyme disease. And, you know, it was a wearable device, diagnosed himself, and it was a really cool story, right? So what are your thoughts on wearables like, like an Apple Watch potentially adopting some sort of scanning tool to identify Lyme in a wearable and what's what's your kind of background in biosensors and thoughts in, in that arena versus you know PCR testing and traditional antibody testing yeah um Mike Snyder's a brilliant guy um yeah that's um I don't have a lot of experience with biosensors um I I wear one I have one you know I I I um I monitor my own data, but um, I think there's there's a fine line between um, something, a, a direct test and an indirect test. So there are a lot of studies looking at what, what I would call omics, right? So metabolomics, genomics, uh, proteomics, transcriptomics. This is basically um, take, taking uh, Lyme disease patients and you know healthy controls, and looking at a whole bunch of different parameters and trying to find a profile of a person who has Lyme disease versus somebody who doesn't have Lyme disease. And then you whittle it down to what are called biomarkers. So are there a few um, metabolites or um, proteins or in the blood or something that's different between Lyme patients and healthy patients? And I think that has a lot of traction and potential, but where it gets clouded is when you have um, people with co-infections and people who are immunocompromised and in all the different like slew of, of manifestations and, and characteristics of people who have Lyme disease that sort of complicate that picture. So I think it's really important um, that we do have direct tests to go along with these indirect tests, but I think they can certainly provide some insight into the health status of, of people. So when you were talking earlier about treating Lyme disease like tuberculosis and using a multiple antibiotic approach for potentially several months, 
And this will help address the persistent form, the stationary form, you know, the active cells, et cetera. That made me think about a research study that we read up on you about where you investigated how Borrelia went in a stationary phase, right? Lyme disease, when it's in the stationary phase where it's not active and it's sort of just chilling out in your body, that it actually can lead to a more severe manifestation of Lyme, specifically Lyme arthritis. And the question I have is why when Lyme is just chilling out, is it more likely to be associated with Lyme arthritis? Or did I misunderstand that part of your study? Uh, I think you're referring to a paper that was published by uh, Ying Zhang's group at Hopkins. Uh, um, this, this was the stationary phase persister biofilm microcolony of Borrelia burgdorferi causes more severe disease in mouse model of Lyme arthritis. Is that the one? Yes, yes. Okay. Uh, for us, that was more of a collaboration than um, than our own particular research interest or um, what I would say result communication. I I have some, I mean, I think I have some reservations about saying that, you know, persistent Borrelia cause more disease um, because I think there's a lot more uh, research that we can do to, to test that in, in more defined ways. Um, and so what I do think, however, is that the longer you have the infection and the, the less effective the treatments are, the more sick you're going to get. <laughs> I mean, um, I, you know, when it comes to biofilms, um, we've looked in a lot of tissues, uh, human and non-human primate, and for Borrelia, I have never seen anything that I would call a biofilm. Um, for Bartonella, we do see it, and it's it's common for Bartonella to form biofilms. But the data supporting Borrelia biofilms is not overly strong. Saying that, I don't think it's impossible. I just, it's not something that we've seen, and we've looked very hard. All right, so Dr. Embers, can you help us identify the different types of Lyme bacteria or the different phases in the body? My basic understanding of this is you have the active form of the spirochete, right? That's like the corkscrew that we all typically think of when we think of Lyme disease. We've also heard about like this round form where it kind of like hides and it becomes like this, like it almost inverts in and creates this little ball to hide from the immune system. And we've also heard about a third phase called a biofilm, which is like this like kind of super colony of bacteria. Can you break down the different phases of Lyme and and really what they are? Yeah, certainly. And all of those different uh, forms or morphologies can be observed uh, in vitro or in the test tube. So uh, you can treat Borrelia with things that stress it, and you'll see uh, the formation of round bodies. And once they get pretty dense, they'll form these aggregates, which are hard to pull apart. They, they end up looking like globs. Um, and uh, when you look inside uh, tissues of infected animals or um, humans, you, uh, I, I've seen, I've definitely seen the normal like corkscrew um, morphology. Uh, we have seen what would appear to be the round body or cell wall um, deficient forms uh, in tissues, but we have not, verified specifically that those are Borrelia and, and we're working on that with, with specific 
uh, DNA-based probes. Um, but uh, the biofilms are aggregates we've, we've never seen in tissues. And I, um, I, what I wanna stress is that we have to look high, high and low to find spirochetes in tissues. And when we do, they're typically um, in, in singly uh, seen uh, in single form. Uh, and I've never seen large aggregates. I think you've never seen them glob together. You've never seen a biofilm colony of multiple spirochetes and other pathogens together forming this like super colony we hear of sometimes on social media. No, I've never seen that. So that's really interesting because we hear a lot about biofilm busting herbs and drugs to really help. And yet we've never actually identified a biofilm in research. And again, you've done dozens of studies. You've been published and you know reviewed hundreds of thousands of times. So I think that's really interesting information. I'm glad that we we discussed that. So talk to us more about, I kind of want to back up to the round or the, you know, the cell deficient form of Borrelia. So although you're finding these, these objects, you're still trying to determine if they actually genetically are Lyme. Is that what you mean by how you explain that? Yes, exactly. If you're staining a tissue uh, with a fluorescent probe and you see something round, um, you can't say that's a spirochete right? It could be an artifact. And so you have to come up with a way to determine um, with irrefutable evidence that that is Borrelia. And that's what we haven't done yet. Um, and and it's, it's challenging to do. What are but, your thoughts about people who describe looking under a microscope or doing some studies and saying they've seen these round cell deficient forms almost unravel back to a spirochete and they observe it under a microscope and they see, you know, antibiotics or some sort of antimicrobial come in, a spirochete then like goes into a, a round body and then it almost unravels back to a spirochete. You've never experienced that or seen that in, in your studies, it sounds like. Not in animals, but yes, you can see that under the microscope. Um, and I think it's a, it's a protective mechanism by the bacteria to change the surface to volume ratio. And a lot of bacteria do this, actually, um, change their morphology in stressful environments. And so um, I think, you know, whether or not those forms are infectious, I mean, Ying Zhang did some, some research where he created those forms and injected them into mice, and they were just as infectious as, um, as the uh, sessile, what, what are called the sessile form. Um, or the standard Borrelia wiggly form. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's it's a protective mechanism and I think the, the Borrelia can do that. Uh, when it comes to biofilms, um, typically biofilms are made of multiple different bacteria and they have like a, a, like a sugar coating um, basically. And uh, we know uh, for a fact that <clears throat> that Bartonella forms biofilms. It's very common uh, in, in what's called uh, blood culture negative endocarditis. You can actually take specimens from patients who have endocarditis and you can look uh, and see Bartonella in the biofilm form. Um, so, you know, maybe for, for those uh, patients who have Bartonella, uh, biofilm busting agents would be beneficial, but for Borrelia, um, I think it's import more important for us to just focus on uh, finding ways to kill the bacteria themselves because yeah. they're rare and they're single when we've seen them. This is really important information. And 
I, I'm so the biofilm piece makes complete sense. We've never seen lime and biofilm. They're generally random, you know, single pieces here and there throughout the body, throughout the tissue, throughout the blood. Bartonella we see in biofilm often, and there can be benefit there to treat Bartonella with with a biofilm buster or to really get in and break down that that structure that that you know community. But I just want to circle back to the round form again. So when you said that under in in basically in a petri dish, right, and in a non-human model we can see a spirochete kind of just kind of reduce its surface area by ra raveling up and then unraveling once the antimicrobial is gone. But I think what you're saying is in the human model, we have a lot of cyst types objects and we can't just say, because I see a cyst, it must be a, you know, wrapped up spirochete. It could be something else is, is your, your argument here. And until we can prove that we're not sure that these things actually are spirochetes and therefore they may not be what is contributing to our, our illness with Lyme disease. Right. Exactly. Okay. Yes. This is, we, we've had almost 400 people in this podcast and some of this, a lot of this we're hearing for the first time. So we're just mind blowing Dr. Embers by a lot of this. So this is, this is, this is huge. So talk to us about, you know, we had, we've had Dr. Tim Haystead on and he's, you know, taken up the work of Dr. Neil Spector in the Lyme community and the cancer community. And, you know, he talked to us about potential complications or implications with tick-borne illnesses and cancer. So what are your thoughts and have you thought about that? Have you researched any of that? And what are your thoughts on the on Lyme or other tick-borne illnesses being correlated to cancer? Yeah, uh, yeah, this is not an area that I've done a lot of research on, but I have heard some, um, some talks. And in particular, I'm thinking of a talk that Neil Spector gave um, with regard to the role of Bartonella in inflammatory breast cancer. And he did have some very compelling data to indicate that um, Bartonella infected uh, mammary cells could, um, could what we call uh, Bartonella could transform those cells. So uh, when a cell goes from normal to cancerous, we call that a, a transformation. And, um, so I think that's an area of research that definitely warrants uh, more attention. And, and and Neil Spector was a, a fantastic uh, scientist. So does that mean that when Bartonella comes into contact with a cell, it could potentially transform it into a cancerous cell and be almost like a trigger for cancer development? And that's, that's something that's under investigation and, and possible at this point? Yeah, I think there's a lot we don't know about um, Bartonella infected cells. Uh, so unlike Borrelia, Bartonella can get into a lot of different cell types. Um, it actually replicates in red blood cells and then gets into what, what are called monocytic cells. And there's evidence that it can actually infect uh, mammary cells. Um, and so uh, the broad ranging impact that Bartonella can have on the body is is really under investigated. It's 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 shocking how little we know about Bartonella. And for me, you know, entering this field of research, it's a wide open space. You know, there's so much to learn. Um, and so I'm I'm just trying to do the the most thoughtful experiments that 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 will garner. Um, the kind of data that can be uh, what I would call translational or impactful, but there's a there's a lot of work to be done in Bartonella. If we had 100 Dr. Monica Embers, I feel like the <laughs> tick-borne tick disease crisis would not be a thing. I feel like we would be like, oh, that was an old thing that we solved and we moved on from that. So 
we are just so happy to have you on the podcast and so happy to have you doing all this research because again, 400 people, a lot of leaders, a lot of researchers, a lot of top doctors, and we're hearing things for the first time tonight that we haven't heard before at all on this podcast. So that's huge. Let's talk about what you're doing, you know, with some hopeful parts here, right? Because the other part of what you're doing is you're looking at ways to treat differently than doxycycline, which just simply doesn't work for late stage Lyme. So what are some things you're looking at? What are some things that are on the horizon that can give us some hope about maybe some new treatments coming down the pike that can really help fully cure and or eradicate this, this pathogen that is Lyme disease? Yeah, certainly. We, um, like I said, we're focused uh, a lot on combination therapy. So what combinations of antibiotics can we use um, to eradicate the infection? And we have, um, I'm, I'm very grateful because we have the ability to start with uh, testing it in a, in, a, in a test tube, in a culture system. And then if that works, then we can, you know, test it in the mouse model. And if that works, then um, potentially we can we can test it in the non-human primate model, which I think will have a lot more translational value for humans. And um, you know what I've learned is that it's easier to cure mice than it is to cure primates, <laughs> which is not surprising. Um, and we've tested a lot of different antibiotics, and I have a lot of work to do to get these publications written up <laughs> and um, and published. So I wish I had. Uh, twice as much time <laughs> as I have. Um, and I, you know, I think you, you talked about having uh, a lot of Monica Embers's, but I think it's, it's really important um, to think about how much money research uh, costs. And uh, for me, I am extremely grateful to uh, foundations who have supported us, uh, in particular, the Bay Area Lyme Foundation, um, the Stephen and Alexander Cohen Foundation, uh, Focus on Lyme and um, and Global Lyme Alliance. They've all supported us in one way or another. And um, I don't know if you know this or not, but uh, when it comes to federal funding, the NIH has, has given almost nothing to Lyme disease treatments. Now the Department of Defense has, has taken on treatment as, as an interest and so um, I think federal funding will increase, but it, you know, it, you have to recognize that there's a problem and, um, and, and the foundations have certainly done that. And, and I'm, I'm forever grateful to them. Uh, and they're the reason that I can do this research. Well, it's amazing to hear that the Bay Area Lime, because we've had the the founders on this podcast that focus on Lyme. And again, we've had the founders of focus on Lyme on this podcast. And we, we know recently we've heard about the Global Lyme Alliance funding even more of your research and continuing to fund it. And we've had several members of the GLA on this podcast as well. So although I agree that funding is huge and these, these not-for-profits and these fundraising entities are really important to fund your research, if we didn't have a brilliant Dr. Embers to do the research, we wouldn't know what to do with the money, frankly. Because again, 400 episodes, nobody can tell us what you're telling us. So I just think you're being very kind and humble. And with that, I'm going to hand it off to Rich. We've had you for so long, but but Dr. Embers, you, this has been, from my end, a, a beautiful, brilliant, inspiring, hopeful podcast where we've learned so much. And I just want to thank you so much for your, your time on this. And Rich is going to pick it up here too and, and, and conclude so it with you. We, 
we would love to have you for another two hours, but we've already held you away from your personal life for uh, for now two hours. So uh, we are gonna we are gonna uh, wind down and thank you for everything you're doing. Uh, I, I do again want to thank you for dedicating. Uh, your career to this uh, this area of research. It was uh, really brave of you to take on this uh, this area of research. And uh, and we want you to know that your work is not going unnoticed. You are one of the heroes in this community. Uh, and even though uh, there aren't a lot of people probably uh, celebrating you as much as you should, you know, they should be. I want you to know we are, and 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 the community of people that we serve, the sick people that we serve, are really blessed to have you. So thank you for everything that you do, and thank you for taking time away from your family and from your work to uh, spend time with our community. I appreciate it so much, and you know, from my perspective, like you said, uh, research can be a thankless job, but um, hearing from patients uh, motivates me every day. And so uh, I appreciate everything that you, you've said too. Uh, thank you so much. <laughs>